Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome back to a new year of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about the swings and roundabouts of the television industry. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm known internationally as the Format Doctor. And in this episode, we're dealing with the future of television. Our special guest today is Sandra Lehner, who is a consultant specialising in bridging the gap between traditional TV and Gen Z. And later on, Justin and I will be looking into the world of fandoms. But first, in a segment we recorded just before Christmas, here's our usual catch-up. So let's look into the news and views section. And I don't know if you've been watching The Traitors, Justin? I have, absolutely. We're gripped. So this is the BBC's version of a... Dutch format called De Verades, I believe, and it's a so two ways of explaining it. One way of explaining it is that it's effectively a little bit like the mole, but you get to know who the moles are in terms of they're the people that you're trying to detect. Or if you're familiar with the board game, then it's quite similar to the board game Werewolf. I think just just talking about it in general terms, something the BBC have backed quite heavily by having three shows a week go out so that's they've really gone for it in that sense to try and build up a a community of people watching it and after a slow start and the ratings kind of slid down a little bit during the world cup but they've pulled up hard and um they've sort of they've uh, reached quite respectable levels and, and there's certainly a good amount of um buzz social media buzz from my point of view, I, I'm not quite convinced about it because I think it's a very hard game to win. If you are one of the faithful people, the non-traitors, then you're trying to sort of oust the, the people who are the traitors. And the thing is that the traitors kind of know what you're talking about. So if they sort of sense that they know that you're onto them, then they can, in, in the show's language, murder you. Uh, I was told that in terms of worldwide, five out of the seven versions that have happened so far, the traitors have won. So it's, mm. it's it's a tough game to win. I think I think it's a tough game to play. I mean, I am enjoying it very much, but I, I'm on episode five at the moment, and the, the the faithful keep talking about clues. You know, what 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 are the clues have they got to find out who the traitors are? And to be honest, I'm at a loss as to what these clues are supposed to be. There isn't really anything that happens in the course of the day that constitutes any kind of evidence. Um, some of the early, early contestants who, who've been thrown out have gone banged on and on and on about evidence, evidence, evidence. Well, there isn't any. Um, and as somebody I was watching it with pointed out, the challenges that they do to get money into the bank, to the communal bank, largely have nothing to do with that either. So there's nothing about playing the challenges that gives you any clues, unlike the mole, whereas at least in the mole, when they do a challenge, someone's trying to disrupt the winning of the challenge, and therefore you know, they've got to expose themselves to a certain extent. But in the traitors, and after that's some great games, they just have got nothing to do with 
the other half of the game. Mm. And as one of the contestants pointed out as well, there is a somewhat of a flaw, which is that there's no point in getting rid of traitors early because they have a minimum number of shows that the series had to last for. So if uh, they got rid of traitors in the first <laughs> few episodes, they would just recruit a new traitor anyway uh, so that it made sure that it lasted the right number of episodes. So um, mm-hmm. this whole issue again of stretch and squeeze that we've talked about in previous episodes has read its ugly head once more. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's some, there are some very interesting parts to it. I'm always interested in elimination processes. You know, I feel like it's a, it's a device in formats that's often overused or, or poorly used. I think in this instance, the elimination is actually the point of the show. And I think, you know, sometimes there's a brutality to really good and interesting people being, you know, voted off a reality show. I think in in this instance, there's a kind of brutality (laughs) to the elimination, the choices that people have made. There have been some quite shocking choices and they've made some choices for some very bad reasons and then good people have gone. And actually that plays really well into the narrative of the format. So in that instance, I think it's a, the elimination system is working very well. Speaking of brutal elimination games, the Genius game is uh, back on the market. With the sale of the format to the Netherlands, which has just finished its first series, then there's been some announcements that various markets are trying to push that again, including the UK, which is a, it's now ended up in the, the hands of the Banerjee group, and they're looking to make a uk version there's not commission of course they just got the yeah. rights to try and push it here the netherlands edition was an interesting one because rather than the original korean version so if anybody's not aware of what it was it the genius game was a sort of a, a highly tactical social game that involves sort of highly logical board games that you'd have to sort of use a certain amount of teamwork to win the netherlands version was okay but suffered in two respects one was that rather than having 60 to 90 minutes running time which largely was out without adverts i believe they only had commercial hour so they effectively had like about 45 minutes of of actual running time which was really difficult for them to squeeze in like the main game sort of all the backstory and all the intrigue plus the elimination side of things as well so it did suffer from that point of view and the, the second thing was that although they cast reasonably well there was just a number a number of uh, tricks or things that we have seen happen in other the original korean version that when they've replayed the game in the dutch version it didn't happen because the contestants just weren't right i'm going to be i'm going to be blunt they weren't clever enough or or (laughs) smart enough to to realize that there was a really clever hidden trick that the producers had built into the game and it was really really disappointing to sort of go you know could have done that was smart and and they've just completely missed it one other thing, Justin, do you, do you know who's on my naughty list? Um, I'll hope it isn't me. <laughs> no, it's the okay. Royal Television Society. Okay. And let, let me tell you why. On their Twitter account, they put up this thing saying, vote for your best TV show of 2022. And they had this diagram of 16 shows, and they were going to do like a World Cup style like elimination thing, get, getting people to vote off. Um, vote for their favourite and then like, you know, do it as like a bracket I think is the uh, the technical term so that they would end up with a, an eventual winner 
And of these 16 shows, Justin, how many do you think were non-scripted ones? Mm, none of them? That's correct. Absolutely none. Wow. All 16 were like either sitcoms or dramas or whatever. Gosh. There was no, there's not even a documentary. There's no factual entertainment, no game show, no variety, no reality, nothing. And I just thought, like, wow. It's like, I know unscripted and formatted entertainment has a bad press and is often marginalised, but you'd think <laughs> that the Royal Television Society wouldn't ignore half of the industry. Well, it's probably more yeah. than half in terms of cash terms. Um, yeah, that reminds me of the Can Canadian Media Fund. So in Canada, most programming is subsidised through the governmental media fund by about 30%. So when you put in your budget, uh, you... As a production company, you will eventually get a third of that budget back from the media fund. However, they don't include game shows. So one of the reasons there are, well, the main reason there are very few game shows on air, original game shows on air in Canada, is because they don't get funding. And so they're effectively, the budgets are a, a third less. So if you're a production company and you 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 pitch for a show, um, your budget is going to be much smaller because there isn't there isn't this money coming in, and that won't uh, pair to programming in other genres. But what's interesting about it is if you look at the as I once did at the ruling as the rules for applying to the CMF, it doesn't say we don't fund game shows. It says, and I quote, "We don't we do not fund anything as trivial as a game show." Oh, goodness me. <laughs> so heaven knows in what decade that line was written. Um, but it's always it's always made me laugh. Even though it's one of the major TV markets that, will, that could eventually earn millions and millions of pounds of yeah. money. So pretty much they have Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, the American versions, which run in, run on primetime. And, you know, that's about it. And anything else, you know, they, they don't do. Just my last uh, thing for news and views, you know, we talk about uh, sort of fiction being turned into social experiments. There's a movie out at the moment, uh, which is a movie about a social experiment. Uh, it's called Divorce Bait. <laughs> this is a really high quality movie. Anyway, mm. it's about a suburban housewife who's very happily married, but she decides to test her friends, put them through a social experiment. So she puts out on social media that she is planning to divorce her husband. Mm -hmm. And the idea of it is to see which of her friends will try and now go for her husband. Right. So that's the social experiment. So anyway, I just thought it was quite fun that uh, uh, it's, it's a movie genre borrowing from the social experiment genre into the scripted space. Well, there's a whole slew of films that have come out that have borrowed from escape rooms and oh yeah, like absolutely, that, so. yeah, absolutely. Um, but I haven't seen the social experiment genre mm, doing that. Mm. Interesting. One thing that's currently worrying the minds of commissioners of traditional TV channels is the aging of their audience. One person that's helping to straddle the divide between old and new media is Sandra Lena, who's often been described as a TV futurologist. She's involved in spotting future trends such as NFTs and the metaverse and working out ways in which they might be relevant to legacy platforms. Let's hear from her now. On Twitter, she describes herself as follows, a TV futurist building the bridge between TV and digital content to reach Gen Z audiences worldwide. 
and as that's on Twitter and it's nice and short, I thought we might leave it at that. <laughs> Sandra, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. First of all, what is a TV futurist? It's a great title. I love it. But what does it mean? I didn't wake up one morning and thought, I'm a TV futurist today. It was more that the <laughs> industry uh, press started calling me that because my main topic, Gen Z, and they felt like I'm talking about the future. But I see it more. I'm talking about what's happening right here, right now. But I also believe that I help traditional media companies to become future proof if they focus on future generations. And also what I'm interested in is trends. So I'm, I'm writing for an industry blog, for a MIP blog for almost 10 years now. And I like to go back and see what I wrote 10 years ago because a lot of it actually applies still today. Um, so, <laughs> so I always say, oh, look, I saw the future 10 years ago. <laughs> I find it interesting that, you just, that it was described as you're building a bridge between these two worlds. What I sometimes hear is the traditional media thinks that the money is in new technology and the new media thinks that the money is in traditional television. So fun fact. Charlie D'Amelio, who is the biggest, one of the biggest TikTok stars, she earned more in 2021 than Keanu Reeves and Tom Cruise. So I do think the money is on the digital side. <laughs> I went to film school. I grew up with television. That's where my heart is. And I do still think that young people, I mean, I do, don't think that I know that young people are watching television, like streaming television. I'm also called a translator sometimes that I speak television and I speak digital <laughs> and I'm translating um, between the two industries. Well, that leads perfectly into my very first question, which is Generation Z or Gen Z. How would you define them? Who are they? And from the point of view of this podcast, why do they matter? So Generation Z is everyone born between 1997 and 2012. So they are between 10 and 25 now. Gen Z is actually the largest generation on us at the moment. And the oldest ones are entering the workforce and will have massive spending power in a couple of years. I think that's why, you know, everyone in this business should care about them. They're the first digital native generation. So they grew up with the internet, with social media, especially YouTube. When you look at kids today, they're all on YouTube. Like the swiping is already oh, yeah. No, yeah, native to them. That also means that their attention span is very small. It's like eight seconds compared to millennials, which have like 12 seconds. So you really need to grab them within the first three seconds, basically. They're the most diverse generation ever. So they do care about diverse representation. But the key is to be authentic. So you can't just cast a diverse group of people. Like it has to be implemented in the storyline, basically. They care about influencers more than about Hollywood stars. Like I mentioned before, you know, Charlie D'Amelio is the biggest star. Comes down to authenticity again, because as a digital content creator, they feel like they have a connection to them, like their friends, you know, the, the parasocial interaction. They actually think they know these people rather than big Hollywood celebrities that feel like so far away from from your daily life. And then they grew up during a crisis. I mean, since since they were born, there was one crisis after the next, which makes them also the most anxious generation ever. And that's why they're quite active, you know, when it comes to 
sustainability issues. So they actually take action and try to change the world. You mentioned something there about attention span, which is very interesting for me because I've just sort of been given access to a whole load of stats about a YouTube channel that I help run. And it's horrific the amount of viewers you lose in the, the first three seconds. You can lose a third of your audience. When you sort of watch a traditional cooking show, it might take three minutes before they do the introduction, like here's the judges, here's the contestants, here's the challenge and start cooking. The pacing is just wildly different. Are you advising TV companies to, to change their style to appeal more to Gen Z? TikTok producers have the same issue. <laughs> it's not just television. <laughs> uh, and it's all about the hook. So you have to bring the hook first and then you can tell the story. And I mean, you know, especially YouTube, it's all about the title and the picture. So how do you present yourself? So that's, that's your hook, basically. And when you start the video, there has to be something that grabs people's attention. I, I see that with myself on Netflix. I, I start one show and I watch it for like two minutes. And then if I don't like it, I change to the next one. So the, the first couple of minutes are so important. There was an interesting quote that you put into one of your articles from Publicist Media talking about Gen Z. And the quote was this, Gen Z look at entertainment differently. They consider scrolling through TikTok as a form of entertainment. And that's almost competing with some of the network content. What's important is to look at the user journey of Gen Z. They wake up in the morning and they go on TikTok and Instagram Reels just for entertainment. And then maybe, you know, for lunch, they go on YouTube and watch like a longer form content for like 10 minutes. And then during the day, they're back on TikTok and Instagram. And then in the evening, they watch something longer on Netflix. So during the day, their main reason to go on social media is just to pass time. TikTok is doing this really well because their their algorithm is very targeted to different niches. So the algorithm picks up quite quickly on, on your interest and then the feed composed in that way. And they're doing a much better job than Netflix, for example, Instagram as well. And this is why people keep on the platform, because I constantly get content provided that interests me, you know, that satisfies my, my interest. So let's talk about TikTok. I mean, you've described TikTok as you know, Gen Z's streaming platform, and you've given some, some reasons for that. Looking up on David's point, as TV natives that <laughs> we are, you know, we often hear broadcasters, you know, struggling to explain how their content is related to TikTok or how TikTok can get involved in their own programming. What, what do you see? Are they essentially just different places or do broadcasters have to become more like TikTok or, you know, how do you how do you bridge that gap? There, there are three ways to reach Gen Z. You either go on the platform and, you know, establish your presence. You use influencers and you use IP they're already familiar with. And then you could go the strategy road or the original content road. And the strategy is, for example, I was just thinking this morning about Inventing Anna. When that launched on Netflix, my TikTok feed was full with, uh, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for you. So they fed basically this audio clip to a TikTok influencers and they started using it. And then it became a massive <laughs> trend on TikTok. And 
And this is how you get the attention. And Euphoria did the same. They just provided audio clips because TikTok is, I think TikTok works the best with audio. I did social media for Downton Abbey and Made in Chelsea. And I always, I try to pinpoint the scenes that people will talk about on Twitter and then create a picture quote. We said picture quote back in the days. Now it's memes. <laughs> <laughs> that I knew people would share. And, and it's the same now with TikTok, just more with audio clips. I think for Bridgerton, they also tried, so they fed specific scenes and then you could do like a, a duet function. You could reply basically to the scene or give your own opinion. People still are putting up things on Twitter, but I, I get the feeling that they're not doing as well as they once were. Whereas this this whole thing about allowing people to respin their content in, in, in different ways, you're almost getting them to do the marketing for you. Yes, David, <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> Gen Z, they're not so much leading back as older generations they're more interactive you know they want to they want to make this content their own and give their own individual spin to it when i put out videos on tiktok some some do like really well and then i'd put out one at the same time pretty much the same content it would get like a thousand views instead of like instead of a hundred thousand i find it very random (laughs) (laughs) i know what you mean but I think, you know, the key for TV producers is to partner with influencers because then, first of all, you you have a bigger reach. And second of all, like I said, they feel like they're their friends and they communicate with their friends. When you say partner with influencers, I could see how you could partner with influence to promote a broadcast or streamer show that you've made. It seems to me to have been less successful bringing influencers across into the television medium. Why do you think that is? Is that is that an authenticity thing? I think so. I think then they become part of the mainstream and and they're not yeah authentic enough and interesting enough to their audience anymore. And it's also Gen Z is very focused on niche content there isn't really a mainstream for gen z they're very in their in their niches which you can also see now with discord you know you have like all these niche interest groups talking to each other on discord it's it's quite hard to get like a massive audience unless you work with big influencers Mm. Do you find that on Discord? Because you, you're you on Discord, aren't you, David? I have a number of game show groups that I'm a member of. For example, a British one uh, where there's people who make their own game show software and, and all sorts of little things like that. These might be just pockets of like 10 or 100 people or so. I don't think they're particularly commercial. They're just, they're just a, a very, very thin, long tail of different people who have like super, super niche things. So this is the, the strategy side that you want you want people to know about your show and then you try to bring them to a Netflix or BBC or wherever your show is broadcasting. And then the other side I see is you, you adapt your show to social media. How can you create the voice on TikTok? How can you do a, who wants to be a millionaire on TikTok? There are already some cases but it's more from brands testing out reality tv shows and films on tiktok which i find really interesting how can you adapt the storytelling 
one Spanish language dating app. They did a telenovela, for example, on TikTok, which was interactive. So you could always choose like, yeah, she should go on a date with this guy or she should go on a date with the other guy. Let's talk about the whole subject of storytelling. Again, you've used this phrase transmedia storytelling, which it's basically expanding the the world, the story world around a show and tapping into the fan communities that are part of that world. And obviously we see that in scripted all of the time now. You know, every movie is part of a of, of a wider universe. But what about formats? We've seen like ITV say that they've, you know, they're going into the metaverse and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So how do television formats, particularly in the entertainment space, expand their story world and tap into fan communities? The voice is creating a metaverse. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that? it mean? I don't know exactly, but I can see how they could create concerts, you know, with the contestants, like specifically for this metaverse and maybe like meet and greets in the metaverse. What I found interesting now was Dragon Ball, you know, the anime series from the 80s or 90s, partnering with Fortnite and creating a space in, in Fortnite for like the Dragon Ball world. And you could go on quests with your avatar and and then win equipment for your avatar. This whole thing of, of using alternative spaces for challenge games is something i find very interesting so for example like i have had a friend who's just in a video recently where it was a chase game around the city using trackers and things like that and you know he needed two camera people two producers and two contestants and uh, you know it was quite a complicated thing to set up for as effectively what was a 20 minute video there are other people who take existing virtual worlds and make their own challenges within these so for example i know somebody called alex day who's known as fail race and what he does is he uses the computer game gta 5 and he tries to survive for an hour in the game while his friends try and hunt him down so people are using things like gta online or roblox or whatever to effectively make up their own games or programs even things like halo that like people have made up a, a comedy show was it called red versus blue i think wasn't it which was they were using the game to create effectively a sitcom i mean it all comes down to audience first you always have to think about where is your audience and how can i reach them like we talked about before, one way is to bring them to your platform, but the other way is to go where they are and then adapt your story world to this platform. So let's go back to your translator role. Uh, we've we've mentioned the word metaverse a couple of times. I'd be interested to know what your definition of the metaverse is. <laughs> You're looking panic. You're looking panicky yeah, already. No, yeah, take take a few down. moments. You know, we're not in a hurry here. Just a big deep <laughs> breath. Go for it. For me, the metaverse is a future iteration of the internet, which consists of persistent shared 3D virtual spaces. So it's basically a seamless experience. So we have Fortnite, we have Roblox, we have Minecraft, the voice metaverse. So in the future, all these metaverses one seamless experience which means i create my avatar in the voice and i can also take my avatar you know with the gucci bag that i bought uh, to fortnite and play with this avatar in fortnite or like transfer the goods 
I bought in a different metaverse to Minecraft, for example. Gucci have have built mm -hmm. their own Gucci store, haven't they? In Roblox. It was in Roblox, yes. The Gucci Garden. <laughs> People like use actual money to buy things, or is it points, or what? How does it work? On Roblox, yeah, you can you can buy with points. Coins. I forget what they're called. Robux. Uh, okay. my, my my son constantly asks me for. Them. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing we have to mop up from the end of last year was Content London. Now, Justin, you've kindly invited me to this event in the past. And if I remember rightly, it's a kind of combined conference networking event and sales market combined. Yeah, it's very much a conference for producers. I mean, we've sadly rather lost MIP formats, which has kind of almost disappeared. So we used to have this annual meeting in Cannes where content producers got together. Um, and now I think Content London and the other content, similar similar events in different countries, is, has picked up the mantle very nicely for that. So it is as much a talking shop amongst people who make stuff as opposed to people who sell stuff, though there was, there was selling going on. Was there anything of consequence from the various speeches or were you more interested in the sort of the minutiae of the announcements or the meeting and greeting or well i did a mixture of both i went to quite a lot of the sessions um and i also had a number of meetings with producers and broadcasters you know in and around it because there were a lot of people gathered from from the industry around the world i picked up some jargon <laughs> I had a, a wonderful example of a Netflix executive who talks about commissioning a quiz show. And she said that it was a white space for us, um, but it was the next turn of the dial and it was coming down the tracks. <laughs> and she managed to get that all into one sentence, which I thought was quite something. Before I come on to specific shows, I just picked up some random pieces of advice. So Mike Beale from ITV Studios, who's a always terrific value, hugely experienced executive. He was talking about co-development deals. And he said, you must always prepare for the exit. The deal, the most important part of the deal is how do you get out of it? And the reason for that is that most ideas rarely make it to air. And therefore, most co-pros about a specific show where you've worked together on something don't happen. And at that point, you need to get out of that relationship and go and take it somewhere else. And what do you do then? Who owns what? So as somebody pointed out, effectively, you need a solid prenup when you go into a co-development deal, which I think is extremely good advice. Hmm. Uh, Mike also said, he was talking about technology, he said, if you bring us a show with technology, make sure you have the technology. Um, because you know, lots of people come and say, oh, we're going to do a show and this will happen and that will happen. And they say, how? And they, they kind of look at him as if to say, well, that's you guys sort that out. So, and, and equally, at the other end of the scale, ideally, you've got that tech exclusively, or at least you've got a handle on the, the market leaders who make that tech. Because if it's completely in the public domain, then A, it's probably not very exciting, and B, it's very, very hard to protect what is the core idea of your show. Mm. And Kate Phillips from the BBC was talking about pitching. She made the, I think, again, very good point that a pitch is a conversation. And so yes, your idea should be 
through and I, I really believe in that I don't believe in paragraphs and headlines but nevertheless it as she puts it it's a journey we're going to go on together um, so be prepared for that and if you go in with that kind of attitude then you know you're far more likely to actually start that that journey I've, I've seen both extremes of, of levels of pitching mm. in my career like I've worked with a company that you could say was a somewhat old-fashioned legacy company who would sit on ideas and let them brew and brew and brew for months, if not years, until they went to the BBC as like a sort of an immaculate conception going, ta-da, here is our next greatest Mm. fabulous format. And that might be commissioned and it might go on for 15 years. And yet I've worked with younger, more agile, let's say, development producers who will just go oh i'll email a few one sentence pitches Mm. several times a week to commissioners and see if i get any bites and that's their level of pitching initially just to see what interest there is yeah well i mean i and unfortunately both work and both don't work i mean i think commissioning editors to a certain extent say don't do masses of preparation just because the success rate the hit rate is so low that they don't want producers spending months and months and months developing things. But on the other hand, I cannot bring myself to pitch a show that doesn't at least work on paper, and therefore I have to work it out. So, yeah, it, it's a difficult balance. But I think that's why I pulled out that quote, because I think it does sit in the, it sits in the middle space, which says, you know, yes, you need to work it out, but also you need to be prepared to, to listen and to understand what the broadcasters bring to the table, which is, I have to be honest, is a lesson that it took me quite a lot of my career to to learn, because um, I always thought that my idea was, you know, well worked out and perfectly formed and so on. Anyway, talking of ideas. So there's a few things on, on the tech side that I thought was interesting. Talpa have got a new show coming called Avastars. Uh, so this uses tech to basically combine the talents of two different people, a dancer and a singer, into one performer. Okay. So the other <laughs> avatar has the voice of the singer and the dance moves of the dancer. Ah, I see. And the game is to survive, you know, create, create the double threat. So, <laughs> so rather, than, rather than get people who are talented, you just get people with half exactly. a talent and then join exactly. them together. I know. I mean, I have to say a lot of these tech ideas have the kind of answer of, Yes, but why? I think Dance Monsters on Netflix, I don't know whether you've seen that, but basically it's amateur dancers competing in a dance competition as CGI monsters. And you really do have to kind of work out which, you know, prescription drug was responsible for coming up with that. And again, it's quite fun. It's quite funny to look at, but why? What is the point of it? I do not get it. So I think often, you know, tech tech people go into these things with tech as the answer to the question, and actually, it's it's not. It's not the reason for doing it. Tech is never the reason for doing it. It has to be a means to another end. So um, ITV Studios own a company called Armosa Formats, which is a very successful Israeli production company. They have a show called Family Piggy Bank, which I don't need to go into. But what's Interesting on the tech side of that is that the set for it is entirely CGI. Um, it's entirely virtual and CGI. So when you license the show, they send you a link, and the link allows you to effectively download the entire set. 
Right. So they've developed that with a tech company called Game Changer. And it'll be interesting to see if that, that is a Game Changer. Um, so it's been made in Portugal, the first series. And it looks great. I mean, honestly, it feels like CGI. <laughs> So I, I think there's there's a there's a there's a bit of a way to go, but uh, you know could well be a very interesting element to the process of you know how shows are licensed. I've always found that the issues with those sorts of sets is not necessarily getting them look for the viewer, but also to somewhat also get the buy in from the people on the set. Yes. because if they can't see anything, they can't react to anything, it's, or if it all just looks like green screen, yeah. then it's it's hard for them to sort of emote. Particularly, I totally agree. I think um, I think that is a real issue, and it's something that you've you've got to be sure that at least your contestants are sort of compartmentalized into something real and are not distracted. By, by the green screen. So there's a show from RTL in Germany called Breaking Point, which actually, rather interestingly, the BBC, uh, BBC Studios, uh, came up with this show and they offered a selection of paper formats to RTL in Germany and say, would you like to pick one? Mm. So RTL picked this show called Breaking Point. And I think it's probably the best like, best way I can describe it is imagining the sort of tension of blowing a balloon up more and more and more and more and more. And where is the point where the balloon is going to burst? Right. So basically, it's a celebrity-based game show. They do challenges, but each challenge contains a breaking point like that. And they don't know where the breaking point is. Hmm. So they've got to carry on with the challenge as long as they possibly can but they've got to judge the moment where the challenge will explode effectively. Okay. So It reminds me a little bit of a show that was called The Time It Takes. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was based on, on clocks. So it was sort of like, you know, here's something supported by some ice blocks, and then you've got time it takes for the ice to fall over to mm. complete the challenge. But there was no kind of like uh, what seems to be the difference here is that the prediction of the element of so presumably you're, you're either winning points or cash or something, and yeah. you're gonna lose you're gonna lose everything if you don't get out by the, before the the breaking point happens. Yeah, essentially that's right. Yeah, and then um, BBC Studios are also currently filming a show called Sex Rated. And I must admit, this did make me laugh. So basically, you have participants, um, and they agree to send out a sex survey to all their ex-partners about their performance, right? (laughs) Then this information is then, you know, collated and fed back to them about what all their partners think about their performance in bed, effectively. And then, obviously, they get advice about how to improve. I should go on this show because I would save them a fortune in stationery. It did make me laugh. They said it was pitched with an animated sizzle. So I'd quite like to see that at some point. I think that's been it's a format by our friends Mighty Productions. That's right. It is. It's Mighty Productions. Yeah. So uh, who are... Who are... So I, I'm actually looking for... I think it sounds a lot of fun. And I think it's probably less prurient and more good-natured than, than it than it might sound because mm. because of the production company involved. You know, they, they know how to make good family entertainment. Probably the last thing that I observed was was a comment from TF1 in France, one of the major channels in France. And the conversation at the time was about linear versus streamer. Um, and Rob Wade, who's the new CEO of Fox Entertainment, 
was talking about how Fox Entertainment have not entered the streaming wars, that they actually still believe in, in linear and free-to-air television. He used the phrase that what linear has is urgency and immediacy, and that that's what streamers want, which I thought was a good phrase. But anyway, going back to TF1, they were talking about launching brands, and they said that even though digital-first strategy can do very well for broadcasters, it was actually very difficult to create brands on digital channels, which I thought was an interesting observation. We're not talking about streamers that are just standalone streamers, but we're talking about the you know the, the digital platform of terrestrial broadcasters that they still and, and everybody on the stage kind of agreed with it that if they've got a new show to launch and, and a brand that they want to establish, that they ideally do that on a terrestrial on their terrestrial platform rather than their digital. And the representative from Spain agreed with this. They they launched the wheel in Michael McIntyre's format in in the spring, but they launched it on their VOD channel and it had no impact whatsoever. Mm. It just sank without trace. And in retrospect, they should have put it on their on their terrestrial channel with all the kind of bells and whistles around it and the support within the within the schedule and, and everything else and possibly on their VOD channel as well. But to establish that brand in the viewers' minds, um, it should have started terrestrial. Well, they're going to have to find a way of doing it because the BBC have said that they think that pretty much all of their channels will be digital first in the next decade or so. Um, and if, if even if they don't choose to do so, the government might force them to do so as part of the next settlement. Yes, that's true. Though I think they should be looking at the continent where, you know, countries, particularly in the Netherlands and in, in the Scandinavia, have had a digital first policy for much longer. And the results are extremely variable. Um, it's very hit and miss. Some things work, some things don't. But no one has found the formula for making digital first, you know, the, the obvious choice. And now it's time to rejoin our audio metaverse as we rejoin the chat with TV futurologist Sandra Lehner. I held my first meeting in the metaverse last week. I went into a workroom. I had an avatar. Two things surprised me. One was that my avatar lip synced, which I didn't expect. And I, I can see that as a as a major difference. The second thing was the sound, so that we were round a table, but when somebody spoke, the sound appeared to come from that person specifically. And what that all did was to change the engagement from the experience of Zoom or the equivalent, where you're not quite sure who's engaging and how much because you physically turn to where the sound is coming from and you look at the face of someone whose lips are moving. We said that I had the most horrendous headache afterwards and I literally had to spend the next day completely screen free because I had spent an hour and a half looking at something that was effectively half an inch away from my eyes. So an interesting statistic here in the UK where people have reverted to going back to work. So it is only 6% less than it was before the pandemic. And the reasons for that seem to be this need for people to be together in person. They've had enough of the virtual experience, which does seem to me to fly slightly in the face of the metaverse, 
where we're all avatars in a digital world? I personally don't want everyone to be in the metaverse. I think we all need this in real life experience. And I would always encourage producers to also have a real life experience where you can interact with your fans, like inviting your super fans to an event where they can meet the actors or get a preview. Gen Z is, you know, they're growing up online and they are on all these gaming platforms. I had a meeting with a research company, Kids Know Best, last week, and they say kids are on Roblox and Minecraft mostly. So, you know, mm. I'm not sure what's going to happen because, yes, we older generations, we have this need, you know, to go back to the office and have real life interactions. But younger generations, they already have, you know, their friends all over the world. They meet on Discord every day, you know, mm. from, I don't know, Australia, Korea. They're, they're all in this digital space, playing together in Fortnite, building together in Roblox. Um, mm -hmm. But I do think for us as creators, it is important to always give them a real life experience because I find it also scary if we only interact with each other as avatars in the future. <laughs> in the traditional television world, program markets were, I would call, geo-blocked. To have your version of Jeopardy in France, your version of Jeopardy in, in the US, and your version of Jeopardy wherever. Whereas now, formats kind of fly across boundaries and the people that are watching them can be from anywhere. So how are content creators... First of all, they're, they're missing out on, on selling formats individually to all the, the small little countries but also that they're also having an audience which potentially uh, might not speak that great english if it's an english language production how are you catering for an international audience rather than one from a very particular country this is actually a thing from the past i don't think you <laughs> yeah i don't think you can keep people from it so one example is the norwegian drama series scum which was geolocated because geoblocked because I think because of the music rights, fans just they created Google Docs <laughs> with the translations into different languages and they shared it with fans all over the world. Mm. But I think, you know, there are different ways to leverage it because I believe the future is creating communities around your content. I mean, this is why I was saying they're interested in niche content. And on Discord, you have all these small communities. And I think this is the future because then you can create fan communities who really care about your content and you can um, sell them additional content. You can sell them merchandise. And I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day, The Town, and they were talking about the, the best and the worst deals in Hollywood in the past 10 years. And the best deal was actually Moonbug buying Coco Melon and YouTube channels Coco Melon and Libby. And they bought the IP to leverage. They, you know, they said that if you have your show on YouTube, you, ha you already reach 90% of Americans. But then you can still exploit the rest of the world, basically, on, on different platforms. Moving forward, this is what producers should focus on because I think selling your your content, to, especially with this age group, you know, they know how to get what they want to see, I think. <laughs> <laughs>
we're talking a lot about uh, fast channels now. The thing I find interesting about fast channels, which seem to be proliferating very fast, is that you know they are not a sort of consumer choice pick and mix thing. They are on when the episodes are on when they're on. And I also have read that not only that, but they don't really promote their schedules either. You you do dip into them and then you find out what's on. And if you're interested, you start watching it. <laughs> it's sort of both scheduling and not scheduling, which is which is kind of weird. So why do you think fast channels are having such a huge rising curve at the moment? I think it's because there's so much content out there and we don't know what to watch anymore. So they target niche communities again. So it's more about interests and hobbies. They're all monothematic. So if yeah. I'm interested in dolphins, I can, you know, watch the whole day shows about dolphins. And it's also, it's more background noise. So they don't actually watch the content. It's just, you have something on, basically. It's kind of like you have your radio on. No one wants to scroll through streaming platforms. And like I said earlier, you know, I start one show. I don't like it. After two minutes, I start the next one. I get disappointed again. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I say I'm interested in one particular topic. And then I can just lean back and leave it on and, and also do something else in, in the meantime, but still feel entertained. So I've learned something there. So that, this is the term, I believe, for these weird channels that on your digital TV, if you accidentally press the wrong button, you, it comes up like channel 4302. There's a whole channel full of stuff about pets. Yeah. That, that's what these things are. They're called fast channels. Yeah, it's a free ad support the streaming TV. Fast, oh, I yeah. see. Okay. The appeal is also that it's free. Because, you know, with all the streaming services, you know, you subscribe to 10 different services. So you prefer the ones that are free and ad supported as a young person, as everyone. Great. <laughs> in an economic crisis. <laughs> I remember that you went to VidCon, which is a Comic-Con for video content. And you told me two things. It was extremely badly organized, possibly because you no know, one was in charge. And secondly that there was a huge amount of content fatigue uh, because the thing about all of these things that we've been talking about is that unlike traditional television a lot of this content perhaps almost all of this content is of the moment it isn't repeatable it isn't renewable it has to be made up every single time you need to keep in mind that VidCon is a creator conference it's not an industry conference that's why i maybe perceived it <laughs> not well organized <laughs> yeah i mean that really struck me because they also had different tracks so i was mostly in the industry track but i also went to the creator track um and in the creator track like every third session was about creator fatigue it was about how can you avoid burnout how can you produce more effectively how can you manage your well-being your mental well-being one creator, she showed graphic saying 90% of creators have thought about um, quitting social media. And I, and it really struck me, you know, almost wow. everyone. And, and it's because, you know, unlike television, if you don't post regularly on social media, the algorithm 
downgrades you and and you're gone. So you can't even go on holiday without pre-producing and pre-scheduling your content. Who can keep up with with that? So I felt like the solution will be Web3, which is decentralized um, and you don't have the middleman, especially, you know, YouTube and Facebook in between. And you have a direct relationship with your fans and you can directly monetize your fans uh, with additional content and merchandising, for example, but also co-create with them because as I mentioned before, it's all about community. It's all about, you know, creating a fan base and, and really listen to your fans as well. This is already happening in LA where they create NFT shows. Mila Kunis did too, for example. And when you buy an NFT, for me, NFTs are basically just the ticket into the community. Um, you, you buy a token and this is my ticket into the community. And then they invite the fans to co-create with them. It could be that the NFT is a character and you pitch your character or you become part of the Discord community and you co-create storylines and then you feel part of it in the end. You know, and I also think like in terms of marketing, if you co-create with your fans, and make them basically executive producers on your show. You know, you have a, you have such, your success rate will go up, I tell you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that's a great tip. So, Sandra, you're going to be joining us a little bit later to present us with your show and tell item. But for now, for that glimpse of the future and the future is now, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, one company that's had a rather active 2022 is Fandom. Now, you may not have heard of Fandom, but you might have heard of some of their previous aliases, such as Wiki Cities and what was then later Wikia. And uh, Justin, you said that you've spotted a sort of interesting piece of research that they'd put out. Yes, so every year Fandom commission a piece of market research into the mindset of fans. Uh, in order to identify what fans like and don't like and so on. And this year, the study is called Inside Fandom. And I picked it out because they've identified four different fan identities, <laughs> which I thought I might test on you a little bit. All right. Um, it's, not a, it's not a competition, but just to see whether you, whether you agree or how you react. So the first one is called The Advocate. And this they identify as 24% of the average fan base. And the advocate is someone who sees the IP as a core part of their own identity. So they're relating to it in a, in a really fundamental way. Mm -hmm. The second one is called the intentionalist. And this is 31% of the average fan base. So this is someone who, as they say, leans into what they're watching. They're influenced by ads and awards and reviews. And they follow people who are associated with their shows and their games. Mm-hmm. So perhaps a slightly less level, slightly lower level of engagement, but still quite a lot. Yeah. The third one is called the culturalist, which is 24% of the average fan base. And these are people who are heavily influenced by uh, buzz around release and also FOMO, fear of missing out. 
Right. And the last is the flirt. <laughs> so this is, if you like, the least level of engagement. This is about 24%, the least engaged audience, who will add a show or a game to their list until they're ready to engage. Well, that's like the pub quiz level of knowledge. It's like, yeah, it's something I've heard of. It's something I need to be aware of in order to get questions right. But I'm not really somebody who watches it. Yeah. To me, that feels like there's a missing fan there Mm -hmm. in terms of like, I think there's a a category of fan, which you might call the flag waver or somebody who spots Mm -hmm. that something's interesting and important and then makes a big fuss about it as being a standard bearer to say, look, yeah, I really like this and I think you should watch Mm. it too. I, I think that's right. I think you're right. I mean, in a sense, these are all these are all rather passive definitions, aren't they? Because they're saying you know, this is how these four categories react. Whereas, as you say, your flag waver is is the person who 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 spots something and wants everybody else to know about it. And then those people will have a second sort of category of people that like who are friends of the flag wavers who will go, oh, I'm looking for new things to watch, and I'm actively open to suggestions. And then they they will they will go, okay, you've you've said, Mr. Flag Waver, Mrs. Flag Waver, that you're you're uh, you're watching this. I'll give that a try too. And, and mm. so, they, if you're talking about fans, these are generally people that will be more open to suggestion than your average viewer, but. I think there is a sort of a domino effect of of people that initially spot things and make a big fuss about them, and then and then it does trickle down like a sort of pyramid. But as it goes down, and and, and yes, the level of interest and influence does dissipate until it becomes just this sort of mass media blob of now everybody's watching it. I mean, there is a, there is a sort of further level of fan which is not mentioned here, which is the stalker. Um, so <laughs> they've gone from you know making the IP as a core part of their identity to being terrifyingly identified and actually believing that they are a person or that the person on screen is their lover or best friend or enemy or whatever. It's interesting you say this because I think fandom have have definitely ramped up their presence in the overall media space because in October they went on a complete splurge and they bought up a number of well-known properties particularly in the sort of computer gaming uh, and media spaces so mm-hmm. GameSpot which is a computer game review site Metacritic which is like a review aggregation site TV Guide GameFAQs as an FAQs which is where you go to look up the solutions if you get stuck on a computer game and need a cheat code and things like that. There's also Giant Bomb, which is a cult uh, site as well. So, yeah, these were all announced in the block, and everybody suddenly went, oh, wow, you've just mocked up all, all of these quite disparate and yet geeky parts of the internet. And, and everyone's kind of now wondering, like, what what synergy are they going to give them, if any, and what are they going to do with this, all of these properties? Well, I guess it's about harnessing that fandom. I mean, now that fans are so powerful and vociferous and, you know, influence content in so many ways. I mean, as, as we've talked about before, with a lot of, a lot of user generated content and influencers and all the rest of it, the engagements of the fans of those programs are so much more direct and so much more influencing so i suppose that of the obvious next step is to harness the power of that fandom and use it uh you know as a, as a marketing tool 
But like you say, once people realize that they're part of a marketing tool, they might go and start their forums and, and so on somewhere else. I have to say, I'm slightly disappointed that there isn't a TV show and tell fandom in, on Reddit or something like that by now. I know. I keep telling my relatives this. I keep saying, come on, guys, you know, you want a nice Christmas present. This is what you have to do. You know, you've got you the same surname as me. This is fine. But it just isn't happening yet. So if, you're, if anyone's out there, you know, be ready and waiting. So we're back with Cassandra Lena, and we're now going to ask you for your show-and-tell item, something that has a special meaning to you or your career. So what have you brought to show-and-tell us? I have a teddy bear, which is dressed as a Cambridge University graduate. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So there must be a story behind that, then. Yes. So right after film school, I joined... The Format Academy Entertainment Masterclass and was working there for two years as a research assistant. And uh, the last module was in Cambridge. And one of the participants, Steve Blame, who used to be the MTV News host, he gave me a teddy bear because we all graduated from the Entertainment Masterclass. And the Entertainment Masterclass actually changed my whole life uh, career uh, tell us just tell us very briefly yeah. what the entertainment masterclass is the entertainment masterclass is a format academy for tv professionals from all over the world and we traveled to different countries every quarter talking about a specific genre which included game shows reality shows Factual entertainment uh, and variety. Yeah, and the entertainment masterclass basically changed my career because at the time um, I was in in Germany. I went to film school. I was working for Ufa Serial Drama, the biggest drama producer in Germany, and I probably would have become a telenovela storyliner. But during the entertainment masterclass, I realized that Germany isn't really creating original content themselves and exported. They were mostly importing formats. And UK, together with the US and the Netherlands, were the biggest exporters. So from one day to the next, I decided to move to the UK. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and in London, I became more and more involved in YouTube and social media. Um, so it was 2012 when YouTube put a lot of money into their original channels. And this definitely changed my career because now I'm here talking about building the bridge between TV and digital. And all because all because of a teddy bear. <laughs> all because of a teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's marvellous. Right, well, Sandra, thanks for reaching your teddy bear. And... Uh... Again, thanks for being on TV Show and Tell. Thank you. That was so much fun with you. Thank you. And finally, it's time for Fake or Format, the little parlor game we have at the end of the show. One of these shows is real and one of them is fake, which is which. The first one is called The Monkey's Christmas. This was a two-hour-long event televised live by Bibel.tv, 
in the 2000s, six monkeys from Rostock Zoo in Germany were invited to a nativity-themed tea party in the studio. However, it had to be discontinued after the 2007 edition when a rat started to nibble on the mound of food, which caused the monkeys dressed up as Caspar and Melchior to panic and destroy half of the set. So that was the monkeys' Christmas. The other one is called The Junkies Christmas. <laughs> this is a 1993 claymation animation written by William S. Burroughs about a drug addict called Danny who's let out of a prison cell on Christmas Day while still on a high. He gives his last drugs to su- someone suffering from kidney stones and his good deed gives him a new type of high. So there you are. You have The Monkeys Christmas or The Junkies Christmas. Right, and these are formats. These are, well, these are not formats. Only they are sort of TV specials. Festive, festive one-off TV specials. Okay, all right. Well, hmm, monkeys or junkies? Always a, always a tricky dinner party choice. Um, I would say that I'm a bit suspicious of the, the, the William Burroughs one. Just explain to me what happens in that again. It's a drug addict called Danny who's let out of prison, but he's let let out on, on Christmas Day. It's a claymation animation. I think that it would be a kind of strange thing to make a claymation video about. I mean, it sounds like a little bit like a sort of Channel Four alternative Christmas idea. So that that slightly in its favour. The Monkey's Christmas, on the other hand, sounds a very chaotic, and b I think it's depends when it was made but it's a long time since we've used we've dressed up monkeys on television for entertainment so on that basis i think i'm going to go for the junkies christmas as being the real one as being the real one even though you were suspicious of it originally i'm suspicious of both of them so <laughs> I'm, i mean i think both of them are highly unlikely but one feels like counter scheduling and the other one sounds like chaos so I'm going to go for the counter-scheduling one. I don't know how you've done it, but you managed to arrive at the correct answer. <laughs> so, <Okay. yeah. clears throat> yep. so the Junkies Christmas was, uh, was adapted into a short claymation film, and it was produced by Francis Ford Coppola, of all people, wow. and it was based on a William S. Burroughs story. And it's a, a genuine short film that, as you say, to have that feel of a, like a thing that probably Channel 4 has broadcast in the, in the past but uh yeah that that's its origin i was looking into some of the other sort of festive uh specials that have been made in the past the 1987 there was another claymation christmas celebration uh, by the california raisins Do you remember those characters made out of, they were actually from oh, the yeah. oh my god yes from the packet. The, the, oh yeah from the from the, <laughs> the packet in 1978 there was a star wars holiday special Aware of that one? I wasn't, but uh, I do because I uh, quite often am a judge for the Synopsis Awards, an American Awards competition, TV competition, and I quite often get the holiday specials in the categories. So I, I watch a lot of holiday specials based on all sorts of things, from you know sweets to characters, you know candy, uh, and you sort of think. Really, this is a this is a holiday special about you know licorice all sorts or something. So I do know that there is there is a tradition of the um, these holiday specials that spend a huge amount of money on things that have a have a rather odd 
origin. In 2014, there was, of course, Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever, <laughs> starring the cat's Tardar sauce. And uh, featured Mr. T in the past on this show. There was uh, Mr. T and Emmanuel Lewis in A Christmas Dream. And uh, a final one, which is the, my fav- favourite title, is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. <laughs> now, who doesn't want to watch that at Christmas? <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds like the perfect, the perfect festive show. And that's it for now. But we'll be back shortly for more stuff about the television industry. If you want to contact the show, then Gen Xers can email us on contact at tvshowandtell.com, while Gen Z can tweet us at TV Show Podcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>